You're listening to a Soulfire Productions podcast. Welcome to Wellness Realness, where we get very real about all things health and wellness, physical, mental, financial, and spiritual. I'm your host, Christina Rice, a nutritional therapy practitioner and energy healer turned holistic business coach for ambitious entrepreneurs. And I'm here to help you up-level every aspect of your life. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You can find an endless amount of content from me and join my online membership at christinaricewellness.com. And if you want exclusive behind-the-scenes content and my most unfiltered self, DM a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review to Wellness Realness Crew on Instagram and request to follow my super secret account. You can also join the Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe Facebook group to hang out with other listeners in the crew. Get ready for some wellness realness. I have gotten so many questions about my continuous glucose monitor results. In the last couple months, I was sharing about my different experiments and the different results I was getting using a CGM to see how my blood sugar was affected by different macronutrient ratios, different types of diets, different foods, really interesting stuff. And what I love about the CGM is it shows you data for your individual body. So people talk all the time about what's best for balancing blood sugar, what's the best diet. And we all know there's so much bio-individuality, but a lot of people don't have the tools to actually figure out what works for their individual body. This was really interesting for me because I have always had trouble balancing my blood sugar, which is really what brought me into the nutrition space. The first diagnosis I actually ever got was pre-diabetes. And I managed my blood sugar for a long time with a very low carb, ketogenic diet. And then that kind of stopped working for me. And I was becoming really hypoglycemic. And then I started doing experiments with high carb, low fat diets and seeing how that affected my blood sugar. And a lot of the results really surprised me. And even just checking specific foods because we tolerate some foods better than others. This is a great way to figure out what types of carbs work best for my body. What's the best macronutrient ratio for my specific body in terms of balancing blood sugar. I just think that a continuous glucose monitor is such a helpful resource for you to figure out what is great for your body, your body individually. You get real data tracking your blood sugar all day, all night, and even seeing how different emotions can affect your blood sugar, how sleep or lack thereof affects it, how different types of exercise affect your blood sugar. Really, really valuable data and I have tracked my blood sugar for a long time just using your standard blood glucose monitor. And having a CGM is so much more helpful because you're getting that consistent tracking. And the CGM I was using was from a company called NutriSense. I had a great experience with them and I wanted to have somebody on their team come on the show to talk about CGMs and blood sugar regulation and also speak to what they've seen, the data they've seen with the different customers that that use their CGM, I just think it's such a cool sample because they're kind of taking this unbiased approach. They're not pushing any single diet. They're just offering this device that helps people figure out what the best diet is for them. And CGMs can be very difficult for people to get. Even when you're diabetic, they can be difficult to get. And NutriSense is making CGMs accessible to so many more people. And if you want to get a CGM and test things out on your body, I do recommend doing it for 
a couple months to get some different data and try out different things. I think it's so fun to experiment on ourselves. Obviously, we all know I love to experiment (laughs) on myself. And blood sugar regulation is one of the most important things to pay attention to when we're thinking about our overall health, right? Gut health, blood sugar regulation, those are those are key foundations. Blood sugar regulation is going to affect your weight, your mood, your sleep, your energy levels, your risk for a number of different diseases, both acute and chronic. So it's really important. And if you want to try out the NutriSense CGM, I obviously highly recommend it. That's the one that I have been using and I do have a discount code. So you can use the code CRW to get $25 off your subscription. This doesn't work on the trial, but if you're getting a full subscription, you can use that code CRW to get $25 off of your NutriSense subscription. And that's found at NutriSense.io. But my guest today is going to talk all about this and more. We dive deep into blood sugar regulation, all of my nerdy, geeky, loves to biohack type listeners. You are going to love this. It was such a great conversation. We covered a lot. So I'm really excited for you to hear it. I'm chatting with Kara Collier, who is a registered dietitian and a certified nutrition support clinician. She has a background in clinical nutrition, nutrition technology, and as an entrepreneur. She was very frustrated with the traditional healthcare system, so she decided to help start the company NutriSense, and now she is their director of nutrition. So her expertise is in using continuous glucose monitoring, especially in non-diabetics, actually, for the purposes of optimizing their health, preventing diseases, and reversing metabolic dysfunction. Her and her team have personally interpreted thousands of complex glucose data sets. So she has a really interesting perspective. And again, what I love about this is it's not about pushing one diet for everybody. It's about giving people technology to figure out exactly what's best for them and understanding that there is a wide range of diets and macronutrient ratios that can work well for different people. So if you're fascinated with blood sugar or all things bioindividuality or biohacking, you will love this episode. And you can find more from NutriSense, again, at NutriSense.io and on Instagram at NutriSense.io. All of that information will be in the show notes. I'm really excited for you to hear today's episode. And if you try out a CGM, definitely let me know what you find out because I think this is so interesting. So this is what we're talking about today, all things blood sugar regulation, using CGMs. So here is Kara Collier. When it comes to optimizing your nutrition to support your overall health, nutrient density is key. And a company I've been using for years that I love because of their focus on nutrient density is Paleo Valley. Unfortunately, we live in a world where nutrient density is often low or difficult for people to focus on. And so Paleo Valley offers a variety of supplements and food products that really focus on nutrient density and allow us to get those nutrients in. I actually use all of their products, but I want to tell you about two of my favorites. The first being their Essential C Complex. Vitamin C is so important to get in, especially now. Vitamin C is great for supporting the immune system. We need that immune boosting right now. It's been shown to help reduce fatigue and boost your energy. It's also been shown to help combat weight gain, and it's great for heart health, helps to regulate the stress hormone cortisol, so that's not too high, and it increases collagen production in the skin. Paleo Valley's Essential C Complex contains three of the most concentrated natural sources of vitamin C, 
Omlaberry, Camu Camu, and Unripe Acerola Cherry, which is the most potent source of natural vitamin C on earth. It has 120 times more vitamin C than an orange. Most other vitamin C supplements out there are derived from GMO corn, and they usually only contain one fraction of the vitamin, ascorbic acid. Their essential C complex contains the full spectrum with absolutely no synthetic vitamin C, just organic superfoods. Since quarantine, I have been taking this every single day and it has helped my health so, so much. And I also wanted to give a shout out to their apple cider vinegar complex. I recommend ACV to so many people, but there are a lot of people who really just don't like the flavor or they don't know how to incorporate it into their meals. Apple cider vinegar is great for helping to stabilize blood sugar, reduce cravings. It helps with weight loss. It actually improves protein absorption and digestion and can help to stop heartburn symptoms. It's a great way to naturally stimulate the production of hydrochloric acid, which helps so much with digestion. Paleo Valley's apple cider vinegar complex has a blend of apple cider vinegar, organic lemon, organic Ceylon cinnamon, organic ginger, and organic turmeric all packed into veggie capsules so you can just take it, get the benefits, and you don't have to worry about it hurting your tooth enamel. Those are just two of my favorite products, but definitely check out their full line, their beef sticks, their turmeric complex, so much great stuff. And of course, they have a discount code for you. So you can use the code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off at paleovalley.com. Again, go to paleovalley.com and use that code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S for 15% off. Can't wait to see what you try out. I'm so excited to chat with you. And I know that my listeners are very interested in all things related to CGMs. I have been sharing mine on social media and I have, I get so many questions. Um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about like how you started working with NutriSense and like what kind of brought you into this whole space? For sure. So I'm a registered dietitian. And my interest in metabolic health and CGM monitoring started from my experience in the traditional healthcare system. So I started my career in the hospitals and mostly working in ICUs, critical care nutrition. And what I came to learn very quickly is that most people are coming into the ICU because of complications of lifestyle related diseases. Um, Most people are not coming in for acute trauma or an acute infection, but instead it's, you know, diabetic foot ulcer or fluid overload from congestive heart failure or kidney disease. Um, so I've seen people coming in day in and day out with all of this suffering and all of these expensive and time-consuming and painful complications that we could have corrected way earlier on. But unfortunately, the traditional hospital system isn't really trying to address that root cause. They're trying to address the symptom you came in with and get you home as fast as possible. So I felt like people were just cycling in and out with the same problems and we were never making any progress on anything, meaningful progress. So it was a really frustrating experience, but um, from there sort of jumped ship and helped start NutriSense with two other guys. Um, So we're really trying to address those root causes that I was seeing so often in the hospital, but I was seeing you know, people 40 years after that root cause might've started way, way later. So we're trying to address this way earlier. So we're using the continuous glucose monitoring specifically in non-diabetics in order to prevent these metabolic conditions. Of course, that includes diabetes, but we all know insulin resistance is so tightly linked to 
all of these conditions, cardiovascular disease, dementia, chronic kidney disease, some cancers, they're all really linked with metabolic health and insulin resistance. And a CGM is one of our best ways, our best tools to actually monitor what's going on in your metabolic health. Um, we can't measure insulin continuously. You know, insulin resistance is a big umbrella term that encompasses many different lab markers you'd want to look at. But our glycemic variability, how our glucose moves throughout the day is a really, really good proxy for general insulin resistance and glucose intolerance. So we're using that as a tool so people can really learn about their bodies early on and, and address those problems I was seeing in the hospital. So that's where my interest in all this came from is just the frustrations from real life of what's happening out there every single day all over the country. Yeah. And I think that gut health has been such a big focus and I think there's a reason for that. I'm super into all things gut health, but I feel like there's so much to learn about in terms of like with monitoring your blood glucose is so important. And that's just this whole other aspect that I think is, um, you know, just gaining more traction now as like CGMs are becoming more available, which maybe we can get into also why they're so hard to get for some people. But I've had a lot of different guests on the show give different definitions for insulin resistance. And it's like, I've had you know, Paul Saladino on, and then I've had Robbie and Cyrus from Mastering Diabetes, like very different camps of how we should eat. And so I would love for you to explain uh, your definition of insulin resistance for the audience. Certainly. So it's a big question, right? So probably have to take a couple steps back and it's a bit of a long answer, but essentially what is happening with insulin resistance is there's two hallmark changes. Um, one is hyperinsulinemia and the other is decreased sensitivity to insulin in the peripheral cells. So you really, in a type two diabetic, which is most of what we're talking about, I think um, the guys at Mastering Diabetes, I, I don't know them personally, but I know their message. They're mostly work, they're type one diabetics and they're mostly working with type one diabetics, which is totally different. I think it's almost a crime that they're both called diabetes because they're so different. Um, in type one, you're not making insulin. So it's not the same as in a type two where you have high levels of insulin, but your body's not listening to it. So my answer is focus on type two insulin resistance you're seeing from lifestyle related disease. And because um, that's what's afflicting most people with that nuance there, everybody who has insulin resistance and a type two diabetic state has hyperinsulinemia. Um, that is just not debated. Uh, so that means you're having higher levels of insulin than is physiologically normal. So this can be both in a fasted state and in a postprandial state. So if you go to the doctor, you can ask for a fasting insulin level. I highly recommend everybody does it. It's not routine, but it can tell you a lot. Um, so just like fasting glucose, it's telling us what insulin is at in a fasted level. Um, this is useful. We always have some insulin, insulin circulating in the bloodstream, um, but there's also postprandial insulin. So you may have normal fasting insulin, your body's circulating a normal amount, but let's say you eat a bunch of a big meal, you know, mixed meal, carbohydrate containing meal, and your insulin is through the roof in order to process and metabolize that energy coming in. So that could be a hyperinsulinemia in the state of a postprandial response. 
So maybe your glucose still comes back down to normal, but you had to pump out five times the amount of insulin that is normal in order to do that function. So hyperinsulinemia can develop first either in a fasted state or postprandial. Once we have full-blown insulin resistance, it's just high all around the board. You're going to have high levels in a fasted and a postprandial state. So that's one hallmark physiological change. The other is that our cells now have poor insulin sensitivity. So what came first in there, chicken or the egg, that can be debated. I don't think it really matters because both are going to be present in an insulin-resistant state. So, you know, if your cell, all cells have an insulin receptor, which is what makes insulin so interesting to talk about because it affects the whole body. It's not targeted on just, you know, your kidneys or just your brain. It's the whole body. And so it has this insulin receptor. When our body puts out some insulin, that receptor should sense that signal and do whatever job it needs to do, which maybe that's bringing glucose levels back down. Maybe that's helping to build muscle. Maybe it's building fat stores. Um, it should respond to the signal of insulin and proceed in whatever normal function is supposed to happen. So what can happen sometimes if our body is pumping out tons of insulin, we're screaming for that stimulus, then our cells are going to start ignoring it. So I like to explain it in that if you always have, if your mom is always yelling at you, you start to ignore that stimulus. You start to reject the message because it's no longer as meaningful, right? If it's the boy who cries wolf, it doesn't mean as much. So our cells start to think like, I'm always getting bombarded with insulin signals. I can't control how much insulin is getting hit at me all the time, but I can control how I respond. So if cells were human, if I'm humanizing this, they're thinking, I'm just going to start rejecting some of this message because I'm getting bombarded all the time. So our cells become insulin insensitive. And then that means we have high levels of circulating insulin and we're no longer getting the job done of what insulin is supposed to do. And that is when eventually we progress to a full-blown insulin resistant state. So I think it's important to keep that in mind because when we're talking about like what diet is best, what routines and lifestyle habits are best, we have to think about, okay, what's going to lower insulin back to normal levels and what's also going to increase our sensitivity to the effects of insulin. Mm -hmm. um, so what actually causes those is multifactorial. Um, I think if anybody ever tells you there's one cause of insulin resistance or one cause of anything that's not just like a genetic condition, then like a red flag should go off because it's not that simple. The body is so complex. There's never like one cause, one solution for very few things. Um, so if someone says like, it's just carbs, it's a little overly simplistic. If somebody says it's just fat, it's probably overly simplistic. So good rule of thumb, body's pretty complex and there's usually lots of things going on. But what's driving that change in insulin levels and insulin sensitivity is often um, a whole host of things. So it can be poor diet, which we can diet into. It can also be that other hormone levels are out of whack. Um, so insulin talks to other hormones. If you have really high cortisol levels, that's going to throw off the balance of insulin. Um, if you're never sleeping, you have lots of stress, that's going to throw off the balance there. Um, even just being overweight, especially visceral fat. So that's the fat around our organs. Um, that's like the hard beer belly as opposed to um, the fat that you can jiggle on the outside of your body. That's less dangerous. It secretes inflammatory molecules that are going to decrease insulin sensitivity. So just being overweight, having lots of inflammation present, um, being sedentary, poor sleep, high stress, all of these things can contribute to insulin resistance in addition to a poor diet. So 
I'm not sure if that dives into a little bit of what yeah. you're asking, but that's how I view it as a um, framework. And I think it's important to lay that out so that it makes more sense of, okay, why is this intervention potentially working or not working? We have to first understand what are the mechanisms going on. Yeah. And so can you explain the difference between that and physiological insulin resistance? Yes. So physiological insulin resistance means that we have a temporary state of insulin resistance. So this can be induced with a high fat diet. Um, This is well studied, well documented. So you can feed somebody a really high fat diet and their body, their peripheral cells, especially skeletal muscles will start to become insulin insensitive. So essentially, what we see this happen a lot in people who follow a ketogenic diet for a prolonged period of time, and they're essentially consuming zero to minimal carbohydrates. So what happens is the body starts to adapt. The body is super smart. It's going to realize I'm never getting carbohydrates from food. I'm not getting glucose from outside of the body. So I have to create more glucose inside the body to make sure it's present for glucose-sensitive hormones like the brain. But then I'm also going to reject glucose as a fuel source in the muscles. And it starts to prefer fatty acids and ketones as energy. So normally, our skeletal muscles are a huge sink for glucose. We have lots of glucose circulating in our bloodstream, and the muscles want to take that up. They love glucose as energy. But if the body starts to realize, I'm only ever getting fat, then it's going to reject that glucose, and it's taking up the fat instead as its primary energy source. So what can happen in this state um, is if, let's say you've been following a strict ketogenic diet for seven months, your body's like, I'm doing good on fats and ketones, feeling good. And then all of a sudden you eat 300 grams of carbohydrates. The body doesn't know what to do with that because it's not used to it. It's adapted now to a new diet. So we have lower levels of circulating insulin and the muscles are in this glucose rejection mode. And so you're going to have a huge glucose spike your cells aren't sensitive to glucose at that time or insulin. And you're going to see what looks like a diabetic response to carbohydrates. Um, a lot of people, if they do an oral glucose tolerance test and they haven't had carbs in a long time, they will, they will fail that test, but it's not necessarily representative of them being diabetic. So they might get labeled a diabetic because they failed it because their body's not used to carbohydrates. But what you can do is just for three days before that test, if you load up on 100, 150 grams of carbohydrates, you might see higher glucose values in those three days, but then it normalizes. The body's like, oh, okay, we're switching back to using glucose as fuel. That insulin sensitivity returns and completely normal glucose response. So the key difference between physiological and pathological insulin resistance is one is a temporary natural adaptation to what you're putting in the body. It's just adapting. And the other is a pathological change that you can't just reverse with three days of including some carbohydrates in your meal. It is more long-term and progressive. Um, So to decipher between those things, I do have some people who've been following a ketogenic diet for two years. They try carbs and it looks absolutely crazy. And then we have to figure out, is this pathological or is this physiological? So First, you know, let's reacclimate to some carbs and let's see how you do. If you're still responding really crazy after a week of moderate carbohydrate intake, 
then maybe we have a, a deeper issue at hand that we need to address. And also let's look at other labs. You know, we don't need to be myopic about glucose. It's really helpful, but it's not everything. So I want to see a fasting insulin. I want to look at what's your waist circumference, your blood pressure, HDL triglycerides. All of those are really helpful in assessing insulin resistance. So if all of those are normal and your glucose goes back to normal after some carbohydrates, we could be pretty confident that was just a temporary adaptation and not pathological. It's not increasing your risk of any sort of chronic conditions, but it might make it harder if you want to like have a cheat day or if you want to have carbs every once in a while because your body's in this natural adaptation. So it depends. You know, some people they're like, I like keto. I'm never going to eat carbs again. I'm fine with that. Then not a big deal. But if you're someone who wants to be more flexible in how you're eating, maybe you want to incorporate um, carbohydrates more often. So your body's not in this glucose rejection mode all of the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's super helpful because I think that's the debated part of it, right? You have people who are very keto, low carb, and they're like, oh, it's just physiological insulin resistance. It's a normal response. Mm -hmm. It's fine. And then you have other people in this other camp saying, well, then that's still symptom management. Your body still can't handle glucose. And so you haven't really like fixed the problem. And there's just kind of like that debate over, is it a problem or not? And what's interesting for me is I've done, I do so many diet experiments. That's part of like, you know, how I started working with you guys. Cause I was mm -hmm. super interested in like getting some more consistent data instead of just taking my blood sugar <laughs> all the time. But you know, I, um, like my first diagnosis was like pre-diabetes, whatever. And so then I went even, I was like low carb paleo. I went even lower carb for a really long time. Then I was keto for a few years. I was having really bad blood sugar issues and then ate the potato diet. My blood sugar was fine. Yeah. And then I went to the carnivore diet for six months. And at first it was good. And then I got really shitty. And then I started eating high carb, low fat vegan and it balanced out. And it was just like, it's been so interesting for me. And I know a lot of my audience is very curious to understand like all of these nuances because I'm like you, like how you're saying, like, I don't believe there's just one diet. It's different for everyone because mm -hmm. I think the same thing. And I think that's why this is such a good tool because it helps you figure out like what's happening in your body instead of other people's bodies. Um, but just to bring it back for people who don't like let's say they haven't tested their blood sugar yet, what are some signs and symptoms of like having insulin resistance? Yeah, signs and symptoms, um, it kind of depends. If we're at the very early stage, it might just be like brain fog, fatigue. If you're having insulin resistance, your glucose may be kind of like swinging throughout the day. And a lot of times, um, you'll eat and you'll have really low energy or you'll feel that crash after a meal, that's not necessarily normal, right? We shouldn't, when we're eating, we should feel more energized. We should feel good. We don't want to feel that super crash. If we're really progressed to further along insulin resistance, you're going to start seeing more intense symptoms such as like having to urinate all the time, being really thirsty, um, you might even start losing weight because your body's no longer using the, your energy you're getting from food as an actual energy source. So that's more like very progressed. But that early stage, people seem to experience symptoms a little bit differently. But a lot of times it's just like brain fog, poor energy, um, crashing in the middle of the day, maybe not being able to sleep very well because um, it's altering all of the different hormones that are going on when you have insulin resistance. 
So then actual signs, like what we're looking for um, in laboratory measures. Um, so there's not a great, there's not like one test where you can go to the doctor and it's like, am I insulin resistant? And you have the test and it says yes or no. Um, like I was kind of alluding to earlier, it's more of a big picture that we need to look at to assess somebody's insulin resistance or not. Um, and so the most important ones, I really obviously like to stick a CGM on people because I think mm -hmm. it tells us a lot about what's going on with potential insulin resistance and metabolic health. Um, so I'm looking at, and we can kind of dive into the metrics with the CGM, but I want to look at, you know, both what's happening in a fasted state. How is your body handling energy when you're not giving it food? Like, can it self-regulate? When we're in a fasted state, the liver's taking the show here. Like, it's deciding, do I need to increase, increase glucose a little bit? Do I need to decrease it? It's balancing hormones. It's trying to maintain homeostasis. Can you do that in a fasted state well is a big question. And then also, how does your body handle food? Um, let's do a carb challenge and see how you respond. Let's eat your normal meals and see what your postprandial responses look like. Um, so there's a lot of nuances that can go into the CGM data, but it tells us a lot. Um, if you don't have a CGM, that's okay. You can still get valuable information about glucose. Um, a fasted glucose value from a lab is something that should be done at like every annual visit. If you're getting basic labs, that's still very useful because it is telling us, okay, how's your body regulating in a fasted state? Um, I've gone on like little rants before on how I don't think hemoglobin A1C is a great metric. Um, it has a lot of flaws, so I don't love that as a assessment of how your glucose is because it's, it's assuming your red blood cells live for 90 days and not everybody's red blood cells live for 90 days. Actually, a lot of people's don't. So if you have anemia, um, recent blood loss, if you're a smoker, if you are keto or low carb, it actually adjusts your red blood cells. If you have high glucose, it actually adjusts your red blood cells. So it's going to give you, you know, maybe false positive, false negative a lot of the time. So it only has about a 60% sensitivity. So only about 60% of the time is it telling us actually what your average glucose is. So it's like, take it with a grain of salt. If it comes back really high, it's probably a good signal that your glucose is really high. But if it's just a little bit high or a little bit low, it, it might not be telling us that much. So interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I haven't heard that before. So that's really helpful. There are so many mushroom products out there on the market now that people are starting to understand how incredible functional mushrooms are. But you know, I always stay loyal to my favorite brand, Four Sigmatic. I have been using their products for years and I notice a huge difference in my health and they taste amazing. They're so easy to use. The sourcing is super important to me and Four Sigmatic only uses wildcrafted or log-grown and certified organic mushrooms and the products are tested for pesticides, heavy metals, irradiation, mycotoxins, and other factors. And they're so easy to use. All you do is add a packet to a cup of hot water, a smoothie, or a recipe of your choice. If you are looking for a coffee that doesn't give you the jitters, that's great. If you are trying to manage your cortisol, then definitely check out their mushroom coffee mix. There is only 50 milligrams of caffeine per serving, so it's a great way to get that coffee fix and the benefits of functional mushrooms without giving you the jitters. 
And if you love the caffeine-free life, there are so many options for you. The mushroom elixirs are amazing. Their chaga elixir is definitely one that's standing out right now as people are looking to support their immune systems. Chaga is the king of the mushrooms. It is incredible for immune support. It's also great for regulating your appetite. This was the first product from Four Sigmatic that I fell in love with. They also have their lion's mane mushroom elixir mix, which is great for supporting memory and concentration and focus. So if you have a big project or workday ahead of you and you don't want the caffeine, but you want that focus, use the lion's mane. And then for natural energy, cordyceps. This is great for helping to give you a boost of natural energy without caffeine, especially great for athletes if you are working out or looking to recover. I love drinking this in the morning. And of course, good old reishi, queen of the mushrooms. This is great for reducing stress, supporting sleep, and really just calming you down, chilling you out. So this is a great elixir to drink a couple hours before bed. You can make a little reishi latte, add some nut milk in there, froth it up. So good. You'll notice the real benefits from these when you drink them every day, it kind of adds on top of each other. And that's why these are elixirs that I drink every day. I've been doing it for years. Not only do they taste delicious, they're so easy. You just add the packet to water and you're good to go. But I notice a huge difference and it's all natural. Functional mushrooms are amazing. So if you want to try out any of Four Sigmatic's elixirs or any of their other products, then you can head to foursigmatic.com CRW and my code CRW will get you 15% off. Again, that's foursigmatic.com, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash CRW and that code CRW will get you 15% off. And next time you make one of your elixirs, tag me on Instagram so I can see what you're drinking. With fasting blood glucose, what range do you think is ideal? Yeah, we look for 70 to 90 as ideal. Um, Traditionally, like WHO and ADA, they're looking at anything below 100 as optimal. Um, 100 to 126 would be considered prediabetes. But there is a lot of research that is showing when fasting glucose values are starting to get to that 90 to 100 range, we're starting to see increased risk factors for Um, you know, inflammation, insulin resistance, everything that comes with abnormal glucose values, we start to see that happening in the 90 zone. So that fasted glucose also, it's important that it's it's actually in a fasted state. A lot of people look at their CGM data overnight and like they're looking at midnight and maybe that was only three hours after you ate, right? That's not necessarily a fasted glucose value. So if it's 1 a.m. and you're looking at your CGM data and it's not in the 70s, like it's okay, you're not even maybe in a fasted state. So we're really looking at that waking morning time glucose and seeing what it looks like there. Um, but 70 to 90 is what I consider optimal. So how many hours after somebody ate the night before do you think is best to look at? Technically eight is okay. the threshold that is given. Okay. And so let's say somebody has like chronically high fasting blood glucose, like let's say it's always like 110 to 130, I don't know. And they feel like they're eating really healthy, really right. Like what are the potential causes of that? Is it, is it just food related or are there other things that could be causing high fasting blood sugar? There's lots of other things. So there's a long list of what can influence our fasting glucose, but the top three is when you're eating So it doesn't even matter what you're eating, but those later night meals are really going to increase fasting glucose the next day. Um, This lines up with the idea of circadian rhythm and our eating. So chrononutrition, 
um, that misaligned eating patterns with circadian rhythm can result in much higher fasting glucose values the next day and higher average glucose values overall. So I see this all the time where people will eat the same meal at 8 p.m. and it will have a much higher and more dramatic glucose response and continue to be high overnight and into the next morning than if you ate that meal at 8 a.m. or noon or even 3 p.m. Um, we tend to tolerate food best during daylight hours as a general rule of thumb. Um, so our insulin sensitivity is actually lowest in the middle of the night and highest in the middle of the day. So it works on a circadian rhythm, just like melatonin or other hormones that people are maybe more familiar with working on the circadian rhythm. So one of the, the first things I look at if we have a high fasting glucose is, when did you eat the la last night and, and what did that meal look like? So then outside of nutrition, if it's like, okay, that looked good, then the first two things we're going to look at is stress and sleep. Those are two of the biggest drivers of elevated fasting glucose values. Because um, if you think about it, if you're under a lot of stress, you are stimulating increased cortisol, which then triggers to the body. They're like, you're under stress. You need extra glucose. Like your body needs some energy to deal with whatever stressor you have going on right now. So it stimulates gluconeogenesis in the liver, which is basically the liver is just making extra glucose. And then it's also decreasing insulin sensitivity because the body's like, I'm giving you more glucose, but I don't want you to just suck it back up. I want you to use it for that stressor you have at hand. So that equals to higher glucose levels in circulation. So a lot of times when people are waking up with high fasting glucose levels, it is a reflection of cortisol or stress. And another stressor that the body recognizes as a chronic stressor is poor or inadequate sleep. So those are the two big ones that, you know, meal timing, stress and sleep address 90% of fasting glucose issues. Um, so that, you know, focusing on those three areas is, is going to do most of what's going on. There's lots of other nuances with fasting glucose, but those are the big ones. Yeah. It's, it was so interesting to me with my CGM to see how much the stress affected it, because I remember it was like in the first couple of days I got mine and I had a therapy session and I was like sobbing and I looked at my, yeah. like my blood sugar was so high and I was like, holy shit, I didn't realize how much this really affects it. And like to see that data it's so eye-opening. It's so eye-opening. Absolutely. So I, I think what's really important about things like stress and sleep is sometimes they're so hard to quantify. Mm -hmm. And I think the very first step for building good habits or breaking a bad habit is awareness. If you're not aware of what's going on and what's actually changing in the body, it's really hard to make any sort of adjustment from there. So something like stress where, you know, I might ask someone before we started, before we put the CGM on them, how, what are your stress levels like? Like we, we ask people information before they start so we can better help them once they do start. And people will be like, nah, low stress. I'm like totally fine. And then it's like, well, the data doesn't really look like that. And so it's like, I don't even think a lot of people are aware of how much stress they're actually under or mm -hmm. they're putting their body through because it's just normal. Like that's their everyday life is stress. And, you know, sometimes it's psychological stress, but it's also we can have physical stressors where like poor sleep, but also like poor light exposure. You know, if we're sitting in front of a computer all day, we're never going outside. That's a stressor on the body as well. So we have to think of a bigger picture of what is stress, what is optimal for the body and try to identify that. 
but you're totally right for many, many people we work with. It's super eye-opening. And they're like, I didn't realize how big of a deal stress is. A lot of people will see these higher fasting glucose values during the weekdays. Then on the weekends, they're, it's like way low and they're super chill. And they're like, I don't understand what's going on. And I ate the same thing. And I'm like, well, did you sleep more? Were you more relaxed? You're hanging out with family. You know, you're in a positive supportive environment. And that's usually the differentiator. And so then you can see, wow, I didn't realize what was going on. And kind of like what you described as that acute stress moment of, you know, you're in therapy, it's really stressful, and you're having like a glucose spike. That's our normal stress response working, right? Like acute stress is okay. You're going to see a glucose spike, maybe if you're in like a traffic jam, or if you're doing a podcast, I might see a little bump because there's adrenaline going and that's normal. And that's okay. Like, our body should be able to correct for that. And then glucose should come back down when the stress is over. But where the problem comes is with chronic stress, right? Where you're just always under this cortisol driving process. And so that's when we see like those, those fasting glucose levels behind, not just a little glucose spike, but just an overall elevation because of the stress. So that's where we really want to dive in and, and try to address that. Yeah, you're so right in that. Like, I love how you put it, how it's hard to quantify stress but when you see that data like oh wow it really is affecting me and I think related to the sleep too because a lot of people are like I feel fine I feel great on five hours of sleep maybe like (laughs) they think that and then you're like okay well look at your blood sugar it really does affect you um and the other physical stressor I wanted to talk about was exercise um and how different types of exercise affect our blood glucose can you so can you speak more to that yeah definitely Um, exercise is one of the best things you can do for increasing insulin sensitivity. So if we go back to what's driving insulin resistance or what's at least occurring during insulin resistance, the high levels of insulin and poor insulin sensitivity. So exercise is an awesome tool for enhancing insulin sensitivity. And it turns out that all exercise is beneficial. Um, there seems to be a slight advantage specifically to strength training, I'm a little biased towards strength training because I find it to be particularly beneficial. And I just think people underutilize strength training. And I think it's helpful, not just for glucose control, but for so many other factors. But at the end of the day, whatever exercise you like doing, stick with that because it's better to just at least have consistency and do something you're enjoying to do. But in general, a single session of exercise, whether it's aerobic, anaerobic, is going to increase glucose uptake. So we have GLUT4 transporters on our skeletal muscles, and that is what helps bring glucose into the skeletal muscle um, as opposed to staying in the circulation and having high glucose levels. When we exercise, we can increase that glucose uptake without an increase in insulin. So it's a non-insulin-mediated glucose uptake. So that's great. We're getting glucose out of the bloodstream without having to even stimulate insulin. That's a pretty win-win. Um, In addition to that, it also increases our mitochondrial number. It reduces adipose adipose cell size. Um, It helps clear some of our glycogen stores. So we have more room for glucose if we're going to eat carbohydrates after or later in the day. Um, I can't overemphasize how important I think exercise is. And not just traditional go to the gym for an hour, but also move throughout the day, right? Um, We can't just exercise for an hour and then sit for 23 hours of the day, we need to be stimulating our muscles. They want to take up that glucose. They want to be moving. So we have to move around, um, get outside, go on walks. 
But like you hinted at, it, it is a stressor, right? Exercise is a hormetic stressor. And so all stressors have a U-shaped curve. Um, so too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. And that's the same with fasting. That's the same with caloric restriction. That's the same with um, sauna. These are all hormetic stressors. So it's, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But if you do too much of it, it might kill you. Right? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit too much can go too far. So everyone's threshold of you know, their allostatic load, how much stress they can handle and still thrive is different. So I can't, you know, say prescribe X amount of hours per week is the sweet spot. It's going to be different. And it's going to depend on how many other hormetic stressors you have going on. Um, If you're really driving an exercise, but you don't do a lot of fasting, you don't do a lot of other stressors, then you might have a, you know, higher threshold and exercise bucket, but you have a lower buckets elsewhere. So you have to kind of look at it as a whole picture. But if you're doing a lot of exercise and you're constantly feeling fatigued and constantly feeling sore and your glucose is erratic, that might be a signal it's like a little bit too much stress. But for most people, I think it's the other problem where we're probably not getting enough exercise. Yeah. Um, but you do have to be careful about, you know, over-exercising can be a problem as well. Yeah. Well, and then what about in terms of timing for exercise? Because I think that's interesting. Do you notice that if people time their exercise at a certain time of day, it's better for their blood glucose control? In general, I, I like to recommend fasted exercise um, towards, you know, more the beginning of the day. Uh, this seems to be really powerful in enhancing metabolic flexibility and forcing the body to use its own stores for energy to fuel that workout. Um, you know, this isn't always the best option for every type of exercise. If you're competitive athlete and you're trying to do power sports or sprinting, you might want some fuel beforehand. Or if you're doing really long endurance training, you might want some fuel beforehand. But for most people, I think a fasted exercise earlier in the day is is more beneficial. Um, In regards to timing, you know, sometimes people who who exercise too late in the day, it can alter their sleep quality. Hmm. Um, So that's something to take into consideration. I don't see this affecting everybody universally. Um, but it's certainly something to keep in mind if you're not sleeping well that, and then you're working out late, you might want to adjust that. But in terms of glucose control, it can fit throughout the day of what might work best for you. Um, a lot of times we talk about how, if you do want to include some carbohydrates in your diet, timing the carbohydrate intake after exercise might be the best option for you because you do have that really enhanced insulin sensitivity after exercise you might have cleared some glycogen stores. And so you'll tolerate those carbohydrates better after a workout. So mm-hmm. if you're thinking about maybe, you know, you want to include carbs on a regular basis for to avoid physiological insulin resistance, or maybe to enhance metabolic flexibility, and you want to time that, you might want to then time your, your exercise to be at a certain time to match that. But any exercise to me is better than none. So I'm not yeah. going to be too strict about when you do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Let's be honest, you kind of want to start a podcast and you have that thought for a reason. This is exactly why I teamed up with Kelly Tennant and Connor Moore and we have combined forces to create the pod course, which is a course that teaches you everything you need to know about how to launch and grow a successful podcast. I've been podcasting for five years. Kelly and Connor have been doing this for a long time too. We've all hosted different shows. We've all rebranded. 
Kelly and Connor run Soulfire Productions, our production company. So they work with so many podcasts every single day, seeing behind the scenes. And we know how complicated it can be. So we combined all of our information and knowledge and laid everything out in a really easy to understand, super helpful format. So you can learn in six weeks what took us collectively probably about 15 years to figure out. We cover everything from technology, what equipment to use, how to set up your podcast logistically, hosting it, editing it, producing it, branding your show, naming your show, figuring out your niche, different podcasting styles and how to format your show, how to interview. This is crucial. And Kelly was a professional reporter for a long time, so it's very helpful to have her professional skills. We talk about guest outreach, how to get amazing guests on your show, pitching your podcast, getting on other shows, different promotional strategies and marketing strategies, how to build and grow your community, how to get reviews, and of course, how to monetize. There is so much misinformation out there about monetizing your podcast and we lay it all out so that you can grow your show, monetize it, and you don't have to have a gazillion downloads to do so. Kelly, Connor, and I all have experience building podcasts from the ground up. We didn't have big followings and then whip out a podcast and everybody ran our way. So we get exactly where you are. It can help guide you through this so that you can launch your show and hit the ground running. We are launching this six-week course starting November 2nd. It is going to have weekly modules. We'll have video and audio content, PDFs and guides to support you along the way, and then weekly Q&A calls so that you can connect with other podcasters and have that community aspect as well. And you will leave this course able to create massive impact and make money. Enrollment closes October 26th and we have limited spots available. So make sure you head to thepodcourse.com to snag your spot now. We start November 2nd. Enrollment closes October 26th and you can sign up at thepodcourse.com. We are so excited to help you launch a kick-ass show. I wanted to talk about fasting for a second because Mm -hmm. I feel like I mean, fasting just like took off and there was a lot of people fasting who should not have been fasting. And then it turned into this competition of who can fast the longest and it just was like getting out of control. And so, I mean, what type of fasting do you think is the most beneficial in terms of blood sugar regulation and like who should, who should be doing that and who shouldn't? Good question. So I have a few like fasting and I don't even necessarily call it fasting. This is just like daily maybe eating rules that I think apply to everyone and is generally a good idea. And um, so, so those general rules are, I want to see a fasting window of at least 14 hours. So for most people, um, there are nuances to that, that I can dive into in a second, but for most people, so an eating window of maybe 10 hours, but the most important thing to me is that it's aligned with your circadian rhythm. So I want that eating window pushed more towards daylight hours. Um, if you're fasting for 20 hours a day and you're eating all your meals between like 9 p.m. and midnight, I really, really don't find that optimal. I think we really need to focus on that earlier eating window. And then for most people having at least 14 hours of fasting in your system, I wouldn't even really call that fasting, it's more so just allowing your body to rest, giving your body a break from the metabolic demands that come with eating. Um, the other, the third component of just general good fasting hygiene is to decrease snacking and grazing. So we don't want to, let's say you're eating in a 10 hour window. I don't want you eating every 30 minutes in that 10 hour window. 
we still need a little bit of breaks in between eating to allow your body to feel full or to feel hungry, to allow that rest in between meals. Like I said, it's very metabolically demanding on the body to process a meal. Um, It's meant to do that, but it's certainly not meant to do that 24-7. With that being said, so those are the rules I recommend to almost everyone. Um, I might not even push those or even bring them up if you are somebody who's underweight, um, if you are somebody who has an eating disorder or has struggled with eating disorders in the past, or if you are pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, Those are my nuances to the general rules I laid out because I don't want to focus on any form of like fasting or figuring out when you need to be eating and how much in those populations. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, you know, it opens the world to all the different variances and in intermittent fasting. Um, and as we know, there's many of them. And again, from the research that's available, there's no right way or best option. If someone tells you one way is the best way, again, that should be like a red flag moment. Um, when we started this, that you know, there's lots of concern about should women fast beyond maybe what I just said, like the you know, 14 hours a day. The research was really muddy. A lot of the research on fasting has actually been done on men, not women. So we were very cautious. We didn't recommend any fasting beyond that time women time limit for women in the beginning. But then, of course, you know, people do whatever they want to do, and we still get to see their data based off of all these different fasting regimens. And some interesting information came from that. Um, we, ha- we do see a nuance when it comes to fasting between men and women. Um, so specifically with OMAD and extended fast. So one meal a day, um, I've never really seen a man tolerate that poorly. Glucose looks great. They feel great. Fine. But for, <laughs> we're not the same people. Like it turns out we're not the yeah. same and we can't apply the same rules. So what I see often is women doing OMAD. If they are overweight, insulin resistant, they usually respond fairly well because we have a bigger thing we're trying to fight, which is the insulin resistance. But for women who are relatively healthy, no signs of insulin resistance, um, maybe they're already lean, they're already doing a lot of things like exercise, um, we don't see people respond to the OMAD very well. So normally, you know, by hour 20 of fasting, we should see glucose in that 70 to 90 range and and that healthy, leaned woman. And what happens is the longer they're fasting, their glucose is starting to climb up. Um, That's not what should be happening, right? So that is a signal to me that your body's under too much stress. And so for that person, you know, we, we don't want that to be happening. We might, we need to eat a little bit more frequently. You're sending signals to your body that it's under a lot of stress. And that's countering what you're probably trying to achieve with the OMAD or, or stricter eating window. So I see these nuances with women and same with extended fast, um, specifically in the like lean, relatively healthy women. So as a general rule of thumb, the healthier you are, you know, the less body fat you have, the more Um, you're in a normal weight range and you're doing these other things like exercise and eating healthy, the less we need to rely on these extreme fasting windows. You already have these other hormetic stressors going on. You're already in a good place. We don't need to necessarily rely on more than that, like, you know, eight to 12 hour eating window. I don't think it's necessarily adding any benefit, and I think it could be potentially causing harm. Um, So with that being said, everyone responds a little bit differently. I mean, even if you don't have a CGM, you can get a glucose meter 
glucometer over the counter for like, you know, $20. And if you're a woman in that falls in that category and you like doing OMAD, test your glucose an hour or two before your meal when you're at 20 hours of a fasted state and see what it looks like. You know, that's a good way to figure out for yourself how you might be responding. But um, there is that variance. And I think it's important for people to talk about that because we don't all respond in the same way. Yeah, I think that's super important to talk about because I know so many people, they're like, no, I feel great like this. Like they're doing really a lot of fasting. And then they're like four months later, their hair off, their hair is falling out. And they're like, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, your body's too stressed out. You know, but yeah. I see this also just anecdotally. It's interesting. I feel like my friends and I always talk about this. Like, why do our boyfriends only eat dinner? Like, they're just like, oh, I'm busy. I was busy yeah. during the day. And then like, as a woman, you're like, no, I fucking need, I need to eat something <laughs> before dinner. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's just like how we're designed. So I think yeah. it's, it's important to kind of talk about those nuances. And with extended fast, like, like 24 to 72 hours, do you... I'm sure you guys have seen some interesting data come through because I'm sure a lot of people who use NutriSense do extended fasts. Um, and do you notice like how many hours is really ideal for helping with blood sugar regulation? Because I feel like this is something that all the fasting experts seem to have different opinions on. And so I'm curious what the data you've seen might suggest. Yeah, you hear lots of different things. Um, and I think, again, it depends on where you're at like with insulin resistance and glucose tolerance. So that person who has good glucose tolerance, they're not showing any signs of insulin resistance. Their fasting glucose is already in a 70 to 90 range just with their day-to-day -day regular eating life. Um, when, when they're fasting, especially if you're already low carbohydrate and you've already probably have low glycogen stores, you might reach the benefits that, you know, people are looking for with these longer fasts of maybe enhanced autophagy and glycogen clearance and really low insulin levels. You might reach that at 36, 48 hours because your body's already in, you know, a low insulin, low glycogen state and you're already have good fasting glucose levels. So I think for that person, you know, a one to three day fast is probably giving you most of the benefits. You can also measure ketones and see how quickly, you know, you get into ketosis if you're not already. Um, but a lot of times that those benefits are coming relatively early if you're already in good health. Now, the opposite might be true or the total opposite applies if somebody is insulin resistant. So we have some people who, um, you know, they, they might be considered diabetic, not on any medication, lifestyle controlled, and their fasting glucose values are consistently in like the 130s, 120s. And they're eating maybe like a standard American diet and they'll do a fast and we don't see glucose levels get below a hundred, um, until day five, six, seven. Mm -hmm. And so like that, is, that's a long time. I've seen many people who it takes seven full days of them fasting before we see glucose into that optimal range, because the body just takes so long to clear through glycogen stores and then figure out how to self-regulate. Um, so those can take a long time. And that's why for those people who have more severe signs of insulin resistance on their CGM data, we might rely more heavily on extended fast as an option for them because it's one of the best ways to force the body how to figure out how to regulate again and how to figure out how to balance glucose levels and insulin signaling. 
Um, but for somebody who isn't showing any of those problems, I don't really think it's necessary. I don't really see how much it's adding. Um, yeah. I think it's more so a, like a virtue signaling or a form of self-torture. I'm not sure. But <laughs> yeah. Well, and it can also just cause then cortisol issues if you don't need it. Yeah. You know? If you so. don't need it, then we don't need to rely on that as like, I think you hear so much on like podcasts and books and blogs that it's like, yeah, extended fasting is like the best thing for longevity. And so a lot of people are interested in the health space are like, I want to do everything I can to like have a good, healthy health span, which is admirable. And that's, I'm excited that people care so much, but doing these extended fasts is not necessarily going to enhance that for you if you're already in a good place and doing all these other things and it, it might actually backfire. So mm-hmm. thank you for that question. It's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of what people in the health space say, I want to talk more about like low carb diets and keto versus high carb diets, but I want to lead into that with after a meal, what is like, I think a lot of people, they might get this data and actually not know what's normal for like, you know, how high my blood sugar should raise and then dip back down. Like what's hypoglycemic? What number should I be looking for? And at what time? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, first is the, the fasting glucose that we touched on 70 to 90. And then, you know, after that, we're mostly looking at postprandial responses. And so there's two things we want to focus on. It's how high did your glucose go? And then what does that shape of that glucose curve look like? So for the first part, how high? In general, we want to stay below 140 most of the time. Um, So that is the threshold we have set for optimal glucose values, optimal outcomes is staying below 140 most of the time. So with that being said, there is not a lot of research on optimal glucose values in non-diabetics using CGMs. Um, who, so World Health Organization, American Diabetes Association, they don't recognize your maximum glucose value in a postprandial state as being relevant. Um, so they'll just say, if you have a random glucose value above 200, then that's diabetes. But in general, if you're doing like a two-hour um, postprandial like oral glucose tolerance test, they're not looking at your peak value. They're just looking at what your glucose is two hours after the meal. So there's not official guidelines on this. There are several research studies that show that once you're hitting that 140 threshold, you're starting to see impaired beta cell function, um, higher free fatty acid concentrations, despite higher insulin levels. So you're starting to see maybe some undesirable consequences above that threshold. So with that being said, if you hit 150, you're not going to like suddenly have insulin resistance. It's okay. Like your body's going to recover. It's about repeated exposure. We don't want to see it above 140 a lot of the time. Um, A lot of people in the low carb keto space will say they never want to see your glucose above like 100 or 120. I think that I I don't have convincing evidence that that's a good threshold to aim for. Um, Again, I think that might be creating more problems than benefit. There's like one research study that that shows maybe 120 is a threshold where you might see some negative consequences. I'm not convinced from the lack of data that we need to then be setting these super strict guidelines of what we want our glucose to be in. So I don't think it's bad for glucose to go up. When we eat carbs, you expect glucose to go up. If we were measuring a continual lipid monitor and you saw fats rise after a meal, 
like then you would also freak out. And so it's like, I try to let people know, like when we eat carbs, of course our glucose is going to go up. We just don't want it to go too high. And we want to see what that shape looks like. Um, so it's okay for it to increase a little bit. So the second part of that is what does the shape of your postprandial glucose response look like? In general, we want to see a small area under the curve. So the area under the curve of like how big that glucose response looks like is a good proxy for our insulin response in a postprandial state. So it'd be better to spike up to 150 and come back down in 30 minutes back to pre-meal glucose values than to go up to 130 and stay there for three hours. Mm. So we want to see you come back down to pre-meal values within two to three hours of eating and see this, you know, smaller curve as opposed to this long, prolonged glucose response. Because if four hours after eating, it's still at like 130, 120, that's showing us that your body's still trying to process that. It's still pumping out insulin that's a less desirable response than a shorter, smaller area under the curve. So that's sort of what we're looking at. There's a lot of nuances in that, of course, which is why with our program, we offer dietitian support to everyone who signs up. So through the app, you know, you can chat with a dietitian who's trained on these things and what to look for and how to optimize glucose values so that if you see, you know, a weird glucose response or you're not sure if it's ideal or not, you can ask somebody who knows what they're talking about as opposed to, you know, trying to Google it or figure it out because the body is complicated and there's nuances to it, but that's generally what we're looking for. Yeah. I mean, there's so much bio-individuality and Mm -hmm. what I also was curious about was from like, because I think you guys have such an interesting perspective because you're like, you can see people's data, you know? And so I'm actually really curious about the carnivore community and what you've seen, because I feel like a lot of people in the carnivore space like just show these flatlined responses. Um, that's not what mine was like at all. Yeah. And I remember talking to someone else on your team and they were like, yeah, I've actually seen a lot of people's who like their blood sugar is not good on carnivore. Um, so I was wondering like what you've seen and like what, what you think about that. And like, are, have you noticed any um, negatives for, for low, for low carb diets and like no carb diets for people in terms of blood sugar? Yeah, for sure. So in general, and I think you really said it well in that there's such a wide variety of responses in people. And I do think we have a unique perspective in that we're seeing people's data and we don't have a diet agenda. You know, we're not a a carnivore company. We're pushing carnivore. We're not a um, keto company. We're not a plant-based company. We're just trying to give you data about yourself and unbiased facts to help you decipher what it means. So we get to see people's real life data and their real life situations with whatever diet they're choosing. Um, So with that being said, a lot of times for most people, carnivore does result in a flat line. You know, you're not eating any carbohydrates. Um, Glucose is relatively stable. And that's what we should see if you're not eating any carbohydrates. We should see low glycemic variability, not a lot of swings in your data. But that's not what we see for everybody. Um, So I think you mentioned that you had higher glucose values when you were doing carnivore. And for some people, that could be that physiological insulin resistance occurring. It could be that your body is trying to adapt and it's saying no carbs are coming in. I need to pump out more glucose from my body. Um, and so a lot of times we'll see rising fasting glucose levels on somebody doing carnivore or keto. 
Um, you could be eating plants, but you're not eating any carbohydrates or anything significant. And we'll see that fasting glucose value rise over time. Um, and a lot of times that's that physiological insulin resistance. But sometimes I think people just don't respond well to it. So um, a big thing, and, and you mentioned this in your data, is maybe gut dysbiosis. So this certainly plays a role. Um, and this is controversial, of course, but your microbiome is really going to determine how you respond to foods, um, not just carbohydrates and not just your glucose control, but we all know it affects a whole host of things. So if there's any sort of dysbiosis going on, you might not respond as well to a zero fiber, uh, high fat diet. You, you might not. And then the other nuance is just everyone responds differently. So back to what diet is best for insulin resistance. For most people, we see that a low carb diet does work really well for these insulin resistant people because we have high levels of insulin. What stimulates insulin the most? Carbohydrates. So if we remove those, we lower that and it really helps. We have to also address the whole picture, exercise, sleep, stress, of course, but low carbohydrate diet works very well. But there's always discrepancies to that. So you look at any research study that's studying high fat versus high carb for insulin resistance, and let's say statistically significant that low carb had better results. So maybe most people responded well. There's always this group over here that didn't respond well to that diet. They respond worse. And I think that's important to emphasize because we just read the abstract of a research article or somebody just posts the results. And it says, um, low carb diet, best for insulin resistance. And you're like, okay. But then you miss that like, oh, 10% of people did much, much worse on this low carbohydrate diet. And that's because we're all different, right? We're this unique compilation of genetics, epigenetics, microbiome. And some people just don't respond well to a particular diet where most people maybe do. And that's why I think data is so important. Um, what I always emphasize is try something, like try mm -hmm. the diet. Before we even get into macros, though, I always focus on food quality first. Like, let's make sure you're eating mostly whole foods. Let's make sure that the quality of what you're eating is, is high quality before we even focus on, you know, high fat, high carb. And let's prioritize protein. Um, I think everyone can benefit from prioritizing protein. And then let's play with macros from there. Once we have that dialed in, we can play with macros and gather the data when you're trying it. Feel, how do you feel subjectively? What does your CGM data look like? You know, HDL triglyceride, you know, waist circumference, all these other metrics we talked about, let's measure those and monitor them. If you, you know, you said you did carnivore for five months, that's a pretty good stint. Like if you try something well and it's, it's well crafted for at least three months and things are going in the wrong direction, you feel like crap, might not be the best for you. Like listen to yourself at the end of the day have data behind it to figure out, you know, if, if actually what's going on, but there isn't this one diet for everybody. There's just not. Um, and that's why I think it's dangerous to push one specific agenda, yeah. but it's, it's not sexy to say like, Oh, lots of things can work. Like, try for yourself. So that doesn't really sell. I get that, but it's the truth. Um, yeah. there's lots of nuances to it. It doesn't work for everybody. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my viewpoint on that. Well, just for context, so what do you consider to be a low-carb diet? That's a good question, because it's certainly um, 
I don't think it's well defined. And that's another flaw of research, right? They might be saying they're doing a low carb diet, but they're getting 35% of calories from carbohydrates. And it's like, how low is that? My personal threshold, I mean, low carbohydrate, it also, I think it depends on how physically active you are. Um, You know, somebody who is clearing lots of glycogen stores, they're going to, their carbohydrate threshold is going to be a little bit different. Low carbohydrate, I would say maybe like 20% of your calories are less. And very low, I would say like 10 to 15% or less. Um, I don't know. How do you define it? You know, it's like for so long when I thought low carb diet, I was like below 100 grams. Mm-hmm. And then that's kind of how I, I use the term. But then when I'm talking to other people, I kind of assume, I think most people when they say low carb diet, it's more of like, 150 grams or less if they're more in the paleo space. Mm -hmm. And then when you go broader, I can talk to people who say, yeah, low carb diet and they're like 200 grams or lower. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't know what anyone's talking about anymore. So I just ask everyone because it it is so subjective. And same thing with same thing with high moderate, high protein, low protein. I'm like, I don't, I need to ask everybody what they mean because it's so different for everyone. Like for example, like Dr. Gabrielle Lyon is all about high protein. I'm like, to me, what she says is high protein, which is high protein for a lot of people, I think is like very normal, like four to six mm-hmm. ounces a meal. I'm like, I don't think that's overly high. Um, right. That's just my perspective, just because it like, I guess how I learned things, you know? So that's why I ask. But I also think like, you know, the general recommendation of low carb diets helping for insulin resistance, but then also this piece of, oh, high fat diets can, can cause insulin resistance too. And people are like, what the hell do I eat? you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's confusing. And, and like I said, you know, there's conflicting research and there's a lot of flaws with nutrition research. Um, our tightly controlled nutrition research is usually not very long or it's like, yeah, they're defining low carb in a really weird way, or they're, you know, you figure out what are the carbohydrates and it's like, it's corn flakes. And so a lot of times the research is not great. So we have to rely a lot on observational and epidemiology studies, which have a whole host of flaws. Um, they're, it's really hard to tease out bias, and it's really hard to tease out different variables in those types of research. So I think what you get in the end of the day is, is a bunch of bad research, and I can cherry pick, and I can find, I can make a very convincing case for both sides. Yeah. Um, I, you know, if I, I could find a hundred research articles today on both sides. And if I just showed that it would be very convincing. So I understand why it's confusing because you can have somebody who, who like really hones in on each side. Um, at the end of the day, again, not the sexy answer, but I think it depends. I think what's way more important is really focusing on food quality first. Like I said, um, if we do that, like 80, 20 rule, it's, it's probably going to take care of a lot of the issues if we make sure you're eating really high quality food. And I do think we need to prioritize protein um, because it's not a predominant energy source, but it's important for other reasons. So if we're focusing on protein and then filling in the rest with, you know, based off of how you're uniquely responding, then we're not overloading the system with with too much energy um, Mm -hmm. because protein isn't going to congest the mitochondria. So we get at this like mitochondrial gridlock because mitochondria has to process this energy of when you're throwing tons of fat and tons of carbs at it, it gets confused, it gets a little gridlock, and it becomes a bit of an issue. Um, that's the standard American diet in a nutshell, is this really high fat with really high carb. Um, I think a lot of people 
in the health space, then extrapolate that too far and say like, you're eating a whole food based diet, you can't have moderate carbs or moderate fat. I don't know if I am convinced by that. Um, I don't have great like evidence for either way. I just think that there's got like a lot of people have been consuming mixed diets from high quality foods mm-hmm. and they're eating within their energy requirements. You know, I'm not a calories in calories out person, but we still can't overload the system with excess energy all the time. You still have to eat to your needs. Um, I think if you're eating appropriately at the right time of day, stress and sleep, all these things are dialed in. I don't think that consuming moderate fat plus moderate carbs is going to give you insulin resistance. I'm just not convinced by that. I would totally agree. I mean, I know so many people who feel really great eating kind of like super balanced macros and that is what works for them because I think there are a lot of people where when you go too high, like too low in any macro, then they they get hungry. It's like mm-hmm. some people, they just need a really, a good balance of all of them to feel, to feel their best. And like, I mean, I'm totally on the same page with you. Like I see everything work for all different t- types of people. And I think yeah. that there are, I also think that there are a lot of people who are really deep in the nutrition space who want to nutrition their way out of focusing on stress and sleep. And yeah. I'm like, <laughs> on some level, like, changing this macro by five grams, like, isn't, isn't the problem. Like you need to de-stress some things, you know? And I, I know with my audience, a lot of people who listen to my show are very much in the paleo, like low carb space, because a lot of people follow me, um, from like a lot of the gut issues I went through. And so we've all kind of been put on the same trajectory of like, okay, low carb paleo, keto-ish. And then Mm -hmm it's all these women who then get these issues down the line and then they're like afraid to add carbs back in. And I think that there are a number of things that can potentially go wrong. And sometimes it does work really well, but um, that's why I'm like, I've been more interested in exploring like this other side of things of like, Hey, like keto low carb doesn't necessarily work for everyone forever. And for some people, I know a lot of my audience has been telling me since I started adding more carbs back in than they did too. And they're like, my blood sugar is way better now that I'm eating more mm-hmm. carbs. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's certainly a thing. Uh, it, whether it's physiological or pathological, it certainly can influence what your glucose looks like and your insulin sensitivity. And I, I don't have evidence from the research that long-term zero carb is necessarily bad for you if everything else is dialed in. But I still, I'm a little bit concerned about it nonetheless, because I think it is a sign of metabolic inflexibility. Like mm-hmm. you are no, you're, you're basically exiling one energy source. It's like, I can no longer tolerate carbohydrates. My body no longer knows how to utilize that. Yeah. Um, and I personally don't want to not be able to ever eat carbs. Like I don't want to be inflexible to glucose as an energy source. I don't think that's probably, um, probably what happened from an evolutionary standpoint. Like, I don't think that we were never, ever had carbs and I don't think we never, ever had fat. So that's yeah. like, like, it makes sense to have both. And I think it's interesting for, to hear you say that, you know, you work with clients and you've seen many things work for many people. Like, I always think it's very obvious when somebody is just like a PhD or a researcher and they're not working with real people because they'll, they'll make this like shiny claim and it's like, it's just insulin. And if, you just cut the carbs and you do some fasting, like you will lose all your weight and you'll be fine. And I'm like, uh, I've seen many people who are doing very strict keto. They're doing strict daily intermittent fasting. They're following everything right. And they're not seeing any results. And as soon as you start working with real people, you realize there's no one size fits all. 
Um, it's just not how it works. Like we're all so much more complicated than that. And, and I think we have to like, then people feel bad because they're like, I'm doing what these people are saying and nothing's yeah. working. Um, so that's why I'm all about like self-experimentation and having data behind that to kind of help drive your decisions. But it, it doesn't just always like work as nicely as that nice little box when you're like studying things in a lab. It doesn't always translate to humans in the real yeah. world. No, I'm so glad you said that because I always feel the same way. I'm like, does this person actually work with anyone? And that's the thing of like, when I first doing, like when I first got into this whole space, I was so like dogmatic. I'm like, no, this is what all the research says. Like, this is what I think mm-hmm. everybody should eat. And then if you work with people, you literally, to get people results, you have to open your perspective mm-hmm. and then you see, okay, yeah. no, it's like everything can work for different people. So I think that's a really good point. It's like, does this, has this person actually worked with people or do they just study it? Because you can find studies to show anything. So there are a lot of nuances. Um, and one other, thing, one other thing I was going to ask you is, how often do you actually see protein giving people really high glucose spikes? Not very often. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. what I, I mean, thought. I, I've seen it happen. I've certainly seen it, but it's, it's the exception rather than the norm. And it has to be pretty high. It mm-hmm. usually happens in the people that are doing like an OMAD. And they're combining a super high protein meal with a super high fat meal. They're usually like the people, they're not usually doing a lot of carbs, but they might be doing some carbs too. Um, And we'll see this like big glucose response and a prolonged glucose response. And it's likely just the combination of way too much protein in one sitting, but also just a lot of energy at once, especially like these men who are like really physically active. Um, So they're eating a lot and you eat a lot in one sitting and and you're overloading the system and it, it reacts a little bit. Um, but no, I don't often see glucose increase because of too much protein. I think yeah. the threshold's pretty high. It's certainly not like, you know, 1.2 grams per kilogram or something, probably like yeah. 2.5 or something. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was just curious about that. Cause I feel the same way. And I feel like now people it, just in the nutrition space, it's, I feel like it's a business of make everybody afraid of one macronutrient. And I'm just like, I'm over it. Um, I like them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll take them all. Thank you. So Let's talk about, uh, just to like wrap up, like what is the why behind NutriSense and like who, who is this for really? Yeah. So for me, like the why is that you don't have to follow a one size fits all diet. You can actually figure out what's working for you from your own body. Um, I really data over dogma is what I try to tell people, try things, experiment, but back it up with data and figure out how it's working for you. Um, so who this works for, we have both an option where just one CGM lasts 14 days, no recurring payments. That might be great if you're relatively healthy. You just kind of want to check and see, like, I've been doing this diet for a long time. I just want to see if everything's actually dialed in where I think it is. You know, you're just kind of assessing. Um, we also have monthly subscription plans. If maybe you're trying to experiment with different diets, you want to do a month of low fat and a month of high of low carb. Um, you need some time to see what's going to happen. It takes a couple months. Or maybe you're somebody who has insulin resistance and you want to really make change and see those numbers improve over time. Um, so the monthly subscription is much better if you have either longer term experiments to do or you have some change you need to make um, with you know your body or whatever's going on. So it's kind of two camps maybe of really healthy, mm-hmm. just kind of checking it out versus trying to make change or experiment. Yeah. And just so everyone knows, it doesn't hurt. I thought it was going to hurt. And I was like, I didn't feel it. It hurts more to prick your finger. Like I literally, you don't feel it. It like, it looks big, 
but you don't feel it. I just thought I would say that. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I'm sure people are going to be really interested in trying this out. It has been so helpful for me and with all of my diet experiments. Yeah. And I know a lot of my audience likes to do the same thing. Um, so I'm really excited. So can you just remind everyone where they can get one and where they can learn more from you? Yeah. So you can go to our website, Nutrisense.io, and you just sign up through the website, fill out a quick health questionnaire, and we get you set up through there. Um, and if you just want to like follow along to the information we're putting out, we're on Instagram, Nutrisense.io. Um, we're putting out lots of like glucose related, health related information. Um, and you can also follow me, Kara Collier, on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kara. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Christina. Huge thank you to Kara for coming on the podcast and having such an awesome conversation. Don't forget that you can find more from NutriSense at NutriSense.io and on Instagram at NutriSense.io. And if you want to try out a CGM from NutriSense, you can use my code CRW for $25 off your subscription. Don't forget if you want exclusive behind the scenes access to content related to the podcast and my life, you can follow my private Instagram page, Wellness Realness Crew. All you have to do to get access to that page is take a screenshot of your iTunes rating and review for this podcast and DM it to that account, Wellness Realness Crew, and request to follow. When I get that screenshot, I will accept your request and you will get access to the page. You can also connect further with other podcast listeners on our free Facebook page, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. That's going to be it for today's show. Thanks again so much for tuning in. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day and I will chat with you again next episode.